Well, thank you. And, you know, uh, it's interesting that, that song you, you sang, God is So Good. I remember being in a squatter camp in South Africa, and this camp was, I mean, it, people had nothing. They were living in, it was true shanty town is what it was, living on cardboard um, was their floor that would erode to the dirt, and just simple pallets. You know, we, we make things out of pallets, you know, aesthetically, but they would use them for functionality to live under. And we met for their church in a shipping container. You know, these big metal shipping containers? And, I mean, it was as hot as blazing in there. And, uh, and uh, they were just, when they were singing this song, God is so good, I looked around, and it wasn't a dry eye. It was just this sense of gratefulness. And just and so thanks, uh, thanks so much, Wes, for um, prompting us in that song. Because it does remind us that God is so good in so many ways. Um, speaking of God is so good, a lot of us went to Idlewild. Norm Childers, you know, had a, uh, I don't know if you know Norm Childers or not. Some of you know he had a heart attack and had another one in the hospital. And just got a report coming in here. When that song was being played that he's doing good, he's, he had another good night and a good, good report. And I'm just sitting there thinking, it was so ironic. God, you are so good, you know. And and so many times we'll sing that, we can say that at a funeral service, that God is good. I went to a funeral service the other day on Friday, and a young man had mentioned about his mom. He said, he, you know, he prayed, and near the end, he just give me 10 years of my mom, just 10 more years. And you know, she passed, and then in a quietness of just really just going to the Lord, it the they looked on the calendar, and it had been um, 20 years since she was diagnosed with this cancer. And he thought, you know, hear what my, my prayer was at the end. Give me 10 years. And, you know, he gave me 20 when he didn't have to. And so um, God is good that we're able to open the scripture. And if you are new to us, we're glad you're here. And how we do walk through scripture is we walk through scripture one verse at a time. And we're going to be doing that in just a way in a minute. <clears throat> I'm incredibly excited about these next chapters has nothing to do that it's warfare and history right oh it has everything to do that it has warfare and history in it so i uh, i love studying this kind of scripture it really unfolds next week and the next week in a in a big way this sets up uh there's a there's a brawl a battle that's about to open up and it's about to open up in a way that is not meant God didn't intend for this battle to start this way. This was started on a man's pride. And as we walk through these verses, we're going to see where this, you can start to see this pride. You can start to see this man, Saul, and who he is. Remember this man, Saul, we're talking about two primary characters. A third one would come in by the name of Jonathan, but the, the, the two primary characters are Samuel. Samuel's a prophet. Samuel's a prophet who, anointed by God's approval... You know, in, in his initiative, Saul to be king over Israel. Saul was a good man. He was a businessman. He was a gentleman farmer out looking for his donkeys one day, and then all of a sudden discovers that he is going to be the king of Israel. He's a man who's not spiritually connected. He's just kind of a spiritually disenfranchised person. I think of this, I think of some of you as well, Have you have neighbors that you just they're good people i mean they're good people when times are tough they're there at your door they're not there but they're just not connected in a sense of spiritual matters and that would be saul and so what's going to happen is saul is uh he has a son jonathan jonathan's going to be in play here so samuel saul his son jonathan let me pray for me that i get this right 
and we're going to walk these verses, and I'm pretty excited about it. I know so because of the earlier services preaching through this, and as I get through some things, I'm like, man, some things really just popped out to me that are fresh, so I hope I can remember them. So anyway, let me pray. Lord, please speak through me, and God, don't let me be a distraction in any way that you would have us focus on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, First Samuel chapter 13, verse 1, starts off with a, with a shot here because most of your Bibles don't even have this verse. If you look at verse 1, it says, uh, Saul lived for one year and then became king and when he'd reigned for two years over Israel. If that math doesn't add up, it doesn't add up. And if, if some of your, how many of your Bibles say he was 30 years old? How many of you guys say 30? How many of you says dot, dot, dot? Anybody says dot, dot, dot. Anybody, that verse is not in your Bible, number one. If some of you, we have some that does not have it in there. <clears throat> Anybody have 40 years old? Anybody have 40 years old? You have 40, Annie? Okay, so here's what's interesting about this. This is a uh, scriptural discrepancy. The scribes, uh, this would have been paper that was written on that was uh, very hard to read. The parchments were hard to read. And what was transcribed was incredibly difficult. So they're looking at this and they're... Uh, and so the, the people that are transcribing the Bible, the translations, are having a difficult time nailing down what they're seeing on the transcripts. So, as best I could gather... And, you know, when you go to prep for a message, you read all kind of, you know, concordances and different commentaries... As best I can get, the best deductive reason I can get, including a guy named Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, is that he would be about 40 years old here. So it doesn't really matter exactly how old he is. I'm just kind of giving you a breakdown in case you're ever reading this and you're going, why does it just say dot, dot, dot? About 40 years old. He's going to be he's king over Israel. Verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michemash in the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Wow, what does this verse mean? This verse means this is the very first time Israel has summoned an army. At, to this point, it was a militia. You would take home your weapon, you had your weapons at home, and at any given moment, you could be summoned to go to war. And so at this point, King Saul has looked around and said, well, every other king has a standing army. Why don't I have a standing army? So they began training and equipping men for battle. 3,000. 2,000 are given to him. 1,000 are given to his son, Jonathan. So Israel now has a standing army. By the way, the others who had their weapons are still, by the way, taking their weapons home. Interesting you see, by the, like if you go to, I've done this. I've been in Switzerland during a mobilization weekend. You know, one month, one week in a month, they mobilize their standing reserves. Switzerland, a little neutral country, right? Beautiful mountains in the middle of you know, Europe with no real enemies around them, can raise the fourth largest army in the world in 24 hours. Every man takes home his weapon. Or now women are in it as well, and they take their weapons home. And, and you just see everybody has uh, all these. Uh, I know Alyssa's looking at Josh like, let's move to Israel, get some automatic guns. But anyway, you're, you're looking at. You're looking at a militia here who has always been for defending your country. You have a militia, you defend your country. You have an army, you're looking to do more than that. And so 
Why is he choosing this army? Why is he equipping this Republican guard of sorts? Why is he doing this? Because, verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Verse 4, And all Israel heard it, and that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and that also the people of Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and that the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Okay, let's stop here and talk about this for a second. Go back to verse 3 if you could. Um, Jonathan defeated the garrison. What is a garrison? Keep in mind, the Philistines ruled over the people of Israel. And so they had garrisons. They allowed the people of Israel to do whatever they wanted. You could have your own uh, religious laws. You could have your own government. But we're going to build these garrisons, these bastions of defense and a place where we can house our troops to remind you we're right here. So the Israelites lived under these garrisons. How embarrassing was it for the king of Israel to know there was an enemy implanted into the country of Israel behind these gates and behind these fortresses. And so there was a garrison. Jonathan moved up and defeated with his 1,000 men one of the garrisons. This was a large garrison that we know historically. It fell. It was overrun. And then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land. This is not one proverbial trumpet running around, you know, one trumpet sounding across the land. The trumpets would have been a trumpet sounds here, another trumpeteer hears it, he sounds a trumpet. So echoing throughout the entire valley would have been trumpets sounding, and it would have been a certain sound. These are things that we sometimes escape us, because we're not living in this culture, but there is a sound associated with a certain ruler. You could talk to people, uh, you talk to people from the 18th century, you have to read about them in the 18th century, but they could tell you what bells of churches would signify, which bells they were, if it was, a, it, was, it, was, it was a funeral, if it was a wedding, if it was a major announcement, if it was the death of a king, they all had different sounds. People would understand the sound of, of this kind of trumpet. They would know this is from the trumpeteers of the house of Saul. Interesting. Yet Saul wasn't the one who attacked the garrison, was it? The garrison's defeated by who? Jonathan. And yet who sounds the trumpets? Saul. Saul is trying to trumpets, just sounding the trumpets. And so here in verse 4, it says uh, all the Israel heard it and said that Saul defeated the garrison of the Philippines. So the people are beginning to say, Saul defeated it. Saul defeated it. When in actuality, it was Jonathan. Now, I will say this. Could he have been also sounding the trumpets to rally the militia, people to come together? Because if you're attacking one garrison, you can better believe the other garrisons are going to retaliate. And so the, the trumpets are sounding... But what throws me in this, and the writer doesn't mince any words here, not only does he give credit to Saul, okay, we see that. Saul defeated the, okay, so he's a king. Let's say he defeated it. But go back to verse 3. I keep going back to verse 3, right? Going back to verse 3, it says, let the Hebrews hear. This is a, this is a strange line here. This is a quote given to King Saul. He is talking about let the Hebrews hear. If you're a Jew, you didn't call another Jew a Hebrew unless it was a derogatory comment. The only people who said the word Hebrews during this time would have been foreigners referring to Jewish people. And so he says, let the Hebrews hear. I don't know what this means. I think of uh, when Hitler was in his bunker in the last days, 
he would continually say to his generals, why don't those Germans do something? Keep in mind, Hitler, as evil as he was, was a German, and yet referring to people not even as his own. Would this have been a, a mentality of separation so much that King was so separated in his position and his title as king, he's looking at his own people as outside of who he is. Let the Hebrews hear what's going on. Sound the trumpet, and the trumpet's sounding, resonating throughout the land. This attack was not an attack. It was not strategic just to attack one place. It was a declaration of war. Pure and simple, a declaration of war. He is going to understand that he has picked the fight with an army that is bigger than he has ever imagined. Way bigger. When Pearl Harbor was attacked December 7th, General Yamamoto of the Japanese forces said, we have done nothing but awaken a sleeping giant. In this particular case, a sleeping giant of the Philistines has now been awakened. And it's about to reply. The Philistines are quick to respond, verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Bethaven. Now, let's stop here for a second and hunker down on this. You see where it says 30,000? Throw that number out. We know through Hebrews, which is a correlating verse, this is 3,000 chariots. So it's not 30,000. The Hebrew number for 30,000 and Hebrew number for 3,000 look almost identical, except for what they call small yod, which is equivalent to like the slash that makes a difference between an O and a Q. So it would have been very difficult to determine. And so they throw this number out as 30,000, but in reality it's 3,000. Why? Because you have 6,000 horsemen as well. That number wouldn't have added up to have 30,000. You couldn't, you couldn't run 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horses. So it doesn't matter. 3,000 chariots. Folks, one chariot was equivalent of what we've... It was the, the version of a tank we would have now. A tank, when you talk to World War II veterans, would tell you the most intimidating instrument of warfare. Matter of fact, Saving Private Ryan, when they showed that film, they talked to some World War II veterans and said, what was the most, was the most riveting moment? And they all said something that nobody really thought of. Thought it would be maybe the initial scene with the landing of D-Day at Utah Beach. They said it was the sound of the German tank approaching. It wasn't even the sight of something. It was the sound of something. It threw their mind into something. Because it was such an incredible weapon of warfare. A chariot would have been very tall. It was not small. It had been very tall, probably waist high. The platform would have been waist high where the men would have stood. Two men would drive. One was anticipated to be killed and the other would take over. There would be multiple men in the back with spears and bows and they would attack and just constantly be throwing all the weaponry they had. There were spokes that would extend up to three feet on both sides. The spokes were sharpened as sharp as swords and sabers to plow through crowds of people, wrecking havoc on any enemy. And so you now have an army of 3,000 men. The rest, farmers, shepherds, cooks, carpenters, that's your militia. You are now facing an army, 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, 
Oh, by the way, how many soldiers? I don't know. About as many as a grain of sand on a beach, that many. And this many, you have picked a fight with the Philistine nation in a way that they have never been attacked or insulted before. Who are the Philistines? How did they end up there? These were a nomadic people who lived on ships. They sailed conquering land after land on ships. By the end, they had thousands of ships. They had visited cultures that the Israelites had never even heard of. Some of the cultures had begun to use iron, and they began, They had this iron, and they began to forge it into weaponry. And so the Philistines had iron weapons. The Jews had none. The Jews were still operating, are you ready for this, and you're going to see this later, on a sling system. They would use a sling that they would twirl around, and, and kind of like, you know, oftentimes you think of Dave and Goliath, you think of a sling, like you, we, we'd buy in Gatlinburg, you know, when we're on vacation. You know, and it's really, it's total opposite. It's a stick with a, with a, um, I'll have to bring an instrument in when we go to talk about that, what it's made out of. And, and, but you would use it for deadly use. Well, it was good at long range. And when you got in close battle, the Philistines were impenetrable. And so, why did he attack? Why would Saul authorize the attack? Why would Jonathan attack? Because he was resting in his own strength. Pure and simple. He was resting in who he was which is what you and I have a fear of every day. You and I have the ability to think we can do this. If a preacher thinks he can preach on his own ability, he's in a scary spot. If the addict thinks they can stop on their own ability, they're in a terrible spot. When someone ever walks in and consults themselves, here's what you're going to do. You're going to fall into a world of paranoia. You're going to fall, if you're trying to fix yourself, you're going to fall into a world of, um, that's not a reality if you're, if you only counsel yourself, when you rely on your own strength, if I ever got up here feeling like, oh yeah, I know the story, I can relate the story, I can just tell the story without without any thought or prayer into it, or allowing the Holy Spirit to come in, it'll bomb. It'll bomb maybe not with you, but it'll bomb with me. And over time, here's what happens. You don't meet your first defeat at the garrison of the Philistines, you meet it later. And it'll happen later. And so in this particular case, he's resting on his own strength, He's getting older. At 40, you're old over there. I mean, your life expectancy is running about 35 or so. So you've already gone past that. And so here he is thinking, i got to leave a legacy. I'm going to do something, and we're going to wage war. That's why you leave a legacy. But keep in mind, chariots. Those of you who have been through Scripture before know at the party of the Red Sea, when God parted it, allowed the nation of Israel to walk out, and the water collapsed, the enemy, the Egyptians pursuing them. What were the, what were the Egyptians chasing them in? They were not chasing them on foot. They were chasing them in what? Chariots. And what did God envelop in that water? Chariots. What a great opportunity, what a great reminder, what a great moment for the nation of Israel to say, we've been through this before. We've been through this. We've faced chariots before. God has provided God has done something to get us out of this mess. But what does Israel do? How does Israel respond? Verse 6. When the men of Israel saw they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves, in holes, and in rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, and Saul was still at Gilgal. And all the people followed him, 
trembling. Wow, this is a mess. This is a total mess. You have people that are hiding out in caves. These caves are gigantic, by the way. <clears throat> if you look at these caves now, these, are, these weren't man-made caves. And still, in these natural caves, they house the Israeli arm, uh, army and like uh, for drills. The, the, I think 50% of the Israeli Air Force is stored in these mammoth caves. There's enough food in the caves of Israel to last Israel, the entire nation of Israel, between three and five years on food substance after a nuclear holocaust. These caves are gigantic. They have taken to these caves. The people who couldn't get to the caves are hiding out in the cisterns. Folks, the cistern is basically the, a fancy word for water filtration and sewage system. If that wasn't bad enough, people are crossing over and going to another country. This is like coming under attack at 9-11 and people start hiding everywhere and people start going to Mexico and Canada saying, I don't want to be anywhere near what's going to happen. This is what the people knew of the Philistines. When they attack with this many people, there is going to be pillaging, there's going to be the crimes of war that go on, there's going to be killing. This is when people are decimated. This is, what was it going to be expected was the people were going to die. And so what do they do? They fled and they took off. And you keep thinking, wow, why did you do this? You had a standing army of 3,000 men. Times were under peace. You look around and, and now that you're, you're the only people you got left with you, what are they doing? They're paralyzed with fear. They're trembling. Your very own small guard that's remained are paralyzed in fight. In fright, this is the difference between fighting for a cause and fighting with a mob. This was a mob sense of mentality. Wow, they're attacking. The trumpets are sounding. Let's attack some more. And if, if people start probably assaulting Philist Philistine soldiers in the marketplace and things like this, and all of a sudden people feel like they're brave. Well, all of a sudden the Philistines open the gates of the garrisons and out pours the Philistine army. So many times people use their own strength to get a gain they should never have. There's a thing that people that work out say all the time. What you strive to gain, you have to strive to maintain. And if you think about that, that works with imagery. It works with a lot of things, about everything but weight loss probably. Because it's pretty easy to maintain. But, or, you know, or weight gain, I should say, right? Weight gain you just kind of hold on to. It's not so hard to strive to maintain. But when you strive, what you strive to gain, you have to strive to maintain. I thank the Lord for who we are as a church. And, um, and I mean this in the bottom of my heart. When last night, about the last thing I think I, I got off my heart before I fell asleep was, Lord, thank you for this church allows me to preach up here. Thank you. Thank you for letting me preach. Thank you for letting me be a part of this church. And thank you for letting it be a church. Let's face it. I just get to open up the Bible. I get to open up the very instrument that you have in your hands all the time and get to read Scripture with you and get you excited about reading more. I think about how many times that I see churches fall into a trap of not of veering away from this. not attacking other churches at all. I'm just grateful for here, for me being allowed to do what I do. I don't think I have it in me, Shale. I don't think you, you do either. 
to sit there and think, let's go off campus and strategize and talk about what it's going to be for the next six months and, you know, get the pulse on a culture and get the pulse on things. And, and then, you know, you go through a very popular series and you're dependent on the next series to work and you're dependent on the next program and you're de- what you strive to gain, you have to strive to maintain. And what we do in gathering together as believers is this. The greatest thing you could strive to gain is a closer walk with the Lord here. I hope you never hear a sound of the trumpet at Creekside. Oh, look what we did. Or if we ever do move into our building. Oh, wow, look at our building. When you sound the trumpet, the trumpet will fade. And what will the people do when there's no longer any trumpet sounds? They walk away. They look around. They look for answers. And so always, always in here, if you ever see me, ever see Shale, ever see one of us deviate from teaching the Word of God and what it means in in its totality, before you leave, tell us to shape up. Tell us to get right. Saul was a good man. This was not a corrupt man. This was a man at the beginning. Sure, he wasn't spiritually attuned to things, but he was a good guy, right? He had good character. How did this happen? It happens because you isolate yourself and you fall into a bubble. And you get in this bubble and you start existing in this bubble as your world. Everywhere is a bubble, by the way. Where you work is a bubble. But not careful, a church is a bubble. And what happens, you're only affirmed in that bubble and you only believe what's in that and so here in this case Saul thought he was invincible so let's look and see what happens next verse 8 he waited seven days the time appointed by Samuel but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him if you're if you're reading this and you're wondering what does that mean in verse 8 I'm glad you asked He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Years before, Samuel had a discussion with Saul. He says, there's going to be a day you're going to need me. He didn't go into detail. He says, you're going to need me, and you're going to be at Gilgal, and you're going to need the power and the presence of God, and you're going to wait. You are going to wait, and then I will show up, and I will offer peace offer. And I will offer an offering to God. Because that's how Israel goes into war. Do not do it on your own accord. Don't do it on your own strength. And so, he would remind Saul multiple times. He'd say, Saul, remember, I'm going to meet you at Gilgal. I'm going to meet you there on a certain day. What does he mean by that? Look with me at 1 Samuel 10, verse 8. We're going back a few chapters, right? We're going back three chapters. This is one of those conversations. Samuel says, then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days. You catch that? Not six, not three. Seven days. You shall wait. Doesn't give an option like, hey, you hang around for a week. No, seven days. You shall wait until I come to you, and I'm going to show you what you shall do. This conversation has been going on. Samuel's knowing this. Samuel, by the way, um, or Saul, I'm sorry, knows this. Saul's not forgotten this. Saul has gone to Gilgal. He's waiting day one, day two, 
day three. He's waiting and he says to his men, what's happening? King Saul, your army's melting away. They're leaving. What do you mean? He goes, well, they're leaving. The people have fled in other lands. They're hiding out in caves and cisterns. They've run. We don't have any militia left. Our army's a fraction of what it was. The seventh day has not hit. What does he do? Verse 9. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me in the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Saul has not only invaded the Philistines, he invaded the role of the priest. Only the high priest would do this. This would have been the fattest part of the animal. This would have been a certain portion of meat of the animal. And now it's thrown on this fire and this smoke is billowing. The smell is billowing. Samuel's walking up on day seven. Always the 11th hour, right? God is somehow in love with the 11th hour and coming into our place. It always is. And so here comes Samuel walking up at the moment. This place is billowing out like Hungry Harry's on 41. Smoke just, I mean, the smell of the sacrifice. And he's walking up and he said, what is this? What? What are you doing? I think, as whenever I say I think, don't put too much hope in it, but I think, I believe that Saul was doing this not so much for a sacrifice as it was superstition. I bet you. Jesse, would you say baseball players are the most superstitious people you ever hear of? Oh, yeah. Go do chapel service. Chapel on the first Saturday, you know, a few people. Second Saturday, a few people. Third Saturday, a few people. Fourth Saturday, when cuts are being about announced, 40 people. I mean, I'm going to chapel today before they announce cuts on the team. You know, I mean, the superstition over what happened. This is probably superstition of like, well, I, I saw this done before. Throw this stuff on there. Put everything on there. The smoke is billowing up. I'm almost wondering. This is a wonder. I didn't think about this until now. Do you think maybe he's sending a signal to the Philistines? Because remember, the Philistines always knew whenever God went before the Israelites, they were in trouble. The Philistines even said this. They would say this. Oh, yeah, we, we, we've heard stories about your God. We've heard stories about what your God can do. So maybe at this moment, he's smoking out the place of, with, with all these offerings, hoping that the Philistines will go, man, God's about to move in. Well, Samuel walks up. Samuel walks up and he says, why have you done this? You see, Saul wasn't patient. Without patience and faith, you will not experience all the blessings and the promises that God has for you. Isn't that amazing? That is the cross between the free will of man and God's sovereignty. Whenever there is practiced unbelief and impatience will mark spiritual immaturity. And in this particular case, there was unbelief and there was impatience. Those are honors to ourselves before we go attacking Saul here. Why did we do that? When we look at a nation of Israel and think, don't you remember the chariots got consumed in the sea? In the, in, 
Why did you, why would you think that that number of chariots, which is nothing compared to what Egypt threw at you, would ever harm you? But why do we forget? Why is it we see God answer prayers in so many ways, and then when it comes time to something big and something new, we forget? Why do we do that? Because oftentimes our faith is what we see. It's easy to trust in something you see. It's not so easy to trust in those things that you cannot. I can see in you fear different times over things that are coming up in your life. And that's okay. Shale gave a great description of fear the other day. Fear is more the worship of the object of fear than is a recognition of God. I think I've like, butchered that. You know, the, not so much depending on God, but, but looking at the object or the person as being predominant. But what I think about in fear is this. It's the fear of the unknown. It's nothing you've done. It's waiting on a surgery. It's waiting on a report. It's waiting on something, and you're afraid. Being afraid is not a sin. Reacting out of the fear is. What we do is you see, we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit to stand up to fear when we cannot. How many times have I known God has fixed something before? And I'm afraid he's not going to fix it next time. But what if I went in with a mentality of that God, no matter what you do, I'm yours. You're about to see a level of deception. You're about to see a pattern that we need to be careful of. Any of you ever been involved with Celebrate Recovery, you'll know where I'm coming from in this idea. It's a, it's a system of healing of everything from addictions to weight loss to mourning to all these different things, codependency issues. It all boils down to being open, honest about who you are in Christ first. Breaking down the barriers of what we put on, the layers of the onion that we project to other people. Watch the level of deception about to unfold here in verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. They may think this is no big deal. But when you go out to meet and greet in this capacity, you're walking out with an embrace. You're walking out with a kiss. He is going to him and saying, I'm meeting you cordially as if he's expected Samuel to give him a blessing. Oh, Samuel, I'm so glad you came. I'm sure you can't smell the smell of burnt offering going on that only you can throw on a fire. I'm sure you just know that it's being done in the right mode. Good to see you. He gives him this embrace. That's deception number one. Verse 11, Samuel says, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michemash, wait, stop. What have you done? When you see these words, what have you done? Good place to confess. Excellent point to start your path of repentance. What have you done? Well, well, you know, um, he starts telling lies. What does he say? 
One lie consisted of blaming Samuel. And the second lie considered of, of blaming his soldiers. Well, well, you, when you weren't here, and then I saw the soldiers running everywhere, so he began to blame someone. He was applying Samuel was late, and the soldiers were, uh, were deserting their own king. Samuel was not late. Saul knew that. And so what does he do? He blames someone. Folks, to some of the worst things you could ever walk into in a play, if you ever want to just stay in a pit of life, if you ever want to just, if you ever wonder, why am I hurting? Why is there drama in my life? Why does no one like me? Why does no one call me? Stick with this. Blame others. You'll That'll fertilize that pit as long as you want. Have you ever met anybody that just blames other people constantly? I mean, constantly. Just, oh, well, the other person. Oh, the other person. And then that person wonders what happens when other people blame them. That is, I mean, there are things in my life that I go through that burn me up. Road rage, you know, arrogance on the road, people that litter, you know. And then there's people that blame other people. I have seen churches that seat two and three hundred people. Churches we could have walked into and not be split between two services. And not have to fan ourselves all day. I mean, we could walk in and we've even made generous offers to these churches that have, guess what, you ready? Five to 12 people. Five people in these churches left. 12 people on a big day. And we're like, we can go in. We can, we'll preach your own service, provide music, and we'll pay you all the money you can think that until we get our new building. And you know what? No, no. No, we're just this small because we, um, but we, yeah, we're waiting. There's going to be a growth. Something's going to happen. Something big's going to move. I appreciate that. But at some point, Winston Churchill said at one point, he says, strategy is a great thing, but eventually you have to look at results. And so you have to start looking at, you, you look at your life, and in this particular case, when Samuel says, what have you done? What have you done? It's just an arrogance there. He doesn't repent. So where am I? Number 11. When I saw, did you catch that part, when I saw? When Saul said, when I saw, again, his Faith is based on what he sees, not what he feels. So his second lie was blaming others. But another lie is about to unfold. Verse 12. I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I forced myself. So he's watching what's going on. He's hearing a number of people are, are... rising up against them. He hears this and he says, you know what? Uh, uh, I, I forced myself to throw up this, this offering. And so it, let's let's give the guy the benefit of the doubt. Let's ask ourselves, really, what was it that? Was it that bad? I mean, really, he took some meat. He put it on a grill. Right? A fire. He threw it on a fire. I don't know if it was a grill. Probably fire. He throws it on a fire. He burns these offerings. He's seen it done before. And Saul's going to come in there, or Samuel's going to come in there and smite him. And go, what have you done? What are you thinking? He just got ahead of himself. But the reality was, Saul saw the kingship as his own. And never saw what it should be. Which was God's position. 
It's God's title. It was God who put him in that position. It was God who said, I want you to follow every sense of instruction because you are the one who's going to lead Israel for my sake. God is intending Israel to be established and for the Philistines to be knocked off and for these uh, the Amalekites to be knocked off and for this person to, to be removed from power. Why? For one reason. That in Bethlehem, on a non-existent night, in a map, uh, an uncharted, unmapped town in the middle of Israel, there would be gotten out of heaven the Son of God. The entire purpose and strategy of this moment was everything was in place and in play for the arrival of Christ. That was it. Prepare the way. But Saul saw it in a sense of arrogance. What Saul saw, he, he said, I, I, no, I'm seeing my people. That is why everything we own is God's. Can I get that clear? Everything. People walk up all the time and say, Jake, thanks for using your home and thanks for using my home. Let me tell you, that is not my home. It just isn't lip service. That's God's home. The moment I start going, well, look at my home. Let me tell you what, I'm, God's going to call me home. That was a miracle that got me there. And so many of you, I see what you do with your treasures, and I see how you do with your skills and your resources. You give of who you are. Why? Because you are a part of a plan, a masterful plan. You are a steward of what God has, not an owner, not a title builder of what you have. And that will always keep the blame and the excuses away. So, what happens? Verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Just stop right here. Did you catch that? This was part of the plan he's explaining. And Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, for which he commanded you. Then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. He said, You blew it. You are now going to be relegated to the books of history. You're no longer going to be a part of this, this magnificent lineage bringing up to who Jesus is. I'm going to have to bring in another one because you blamed other people. And keep in mind, just so we don't fault Saul, it, blame didn't begin with Saul. It began in the Garden of Eden. When God looked at Adam and said, "Why? What, what's the sin? It's Eve's fault. Went to Eve. What happened? The snake told me to do I mean, blame has started since original sin. Look at verse 14. But now your kingdom shall continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. All right, everybody, who is this? The man after his own heart. Who is he talking about? David. David is a shepherd out in the field moving sheep around and has no idea that there's a discussion with one of the last prophets and the king of Israel about him. The king of Israel is being told there's a man out there after God's own heart. You know what that means? It means it's a man who, when he is addressed, why have you acted so foolishly? He'll admit it. And if ever you sat there and thought, there's been times, yeah, God had sent chariots in my life, proverbial chariots to rescue me, and I failed to believe you. Do it again. You know what? You're not cast down. You're not judged. You know why? Because you'll admit it. 
because you don't blame others, you don't make excuses, and you simply say, God, this stinks, and I don't know what to do. When I walked into a home one time, there was a man who had died, left his 11-year-old daughter, and there she is crying and wailing on the bed of her dad. I walked in, and the first thing I could do was look at this girl and hold her hand, and without there's no time for theology, there's no time for quote scripture, and to say, sometimes life just stinks. Just to be open and honest. And so we as Christians, in a good way, often try to come in and say, well, you know, let me see what God's going to try to do. No, sometimes it just stinks. Day one and two of Jesus in a tomb, I can guarantee you there wasn't a whole lot of quoting the Pentateuch and quoting of the law. It was people walking around downcast and went back to fishing because life just stunk. It's okay to be at a place when you stop shifting blame or making excuses. And by the way, if we're not careful, we make excuses for God. Well, this is why God wanted to do that. Don't, don't talk as a prophet. Don't do that. That's dangerous. Let the person know you care. Let the person know you're there. But there's a man after his own heart. I can tell you in prison, there are people after God's own heart. There are people on their deathbed right now who are after God's own heart, who've been miserable cretins their entire life. God has a way of connecting with you and I in a way that we cannot connect even with ourselves. Because when we don't blame others and we don't make excuses for others, we do it for ourselves. God, I can't pray right now because you know why? I am a joke. I'm a hypocrite. But God says, when he looks at you in love, he says, what are you doing? He doesn't say in a damning, condemning voice. He says it in one that says this, what are you doing? Come home. Come to me. Where else are you going to go? Did you notice Samuel, when he walked up to Saul, didn't say, you're going to get creamed on the battlefield? He didn't say, why did you pick a, a fight with the Philistines? He walked up and he said, what are you doing by burning the offerings I was supposed to burn? God sent me here years ago to save you from yourself. He sent me here to rescue you. Verse 15, last verse. And Samuel rose and went up from Galgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up to Gilgal, Gibeah of Benjamin, and here it is. You ready? Remember the army of 3,000? The militia of countless of tens of thousands. Historians say would reach 300,000. How many are left? Saul numbered the people who were present, about 600 men. Next week, we see exactly what happens in that battle. We, exact, we see exactly what unfolds and what's going to transpire. But I say to you this. Is this a good time or what for us to deal with Jesus to say in our heart, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing worrying about those things? What are you doing going back to where you were? 
And you know what our first response is? If we're honest, let's be an honest church, a real church. God, I'm not strong enough. God, I didn't, I don't have enough energy for this fight. Why did you make me this way? Why did you, why? And God says, stop burning the offerings. I have sent my offering in my son and given you the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that when you are weak, he will make you strong. That when you are afraid, he will give you courage. When you don't know what to do, he will guide you and direct you. And when you feel like you've lost on every front, when every proverbial chariot has moved in on you, he will give you a peace beyond anything you've ever understood. And so God says to you, in the midst of your fear, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your worry, what do you do? I'm going to come to you in the 11th hour. Folks, we're safe in him. At the very worst thing, at the very worst thing, the very worst, we preach your funeral. You know who holds the twelfth hour? The Lord. That what we cannot see, He is prepared. And if we walked in faith like that, the faith that we know and we trust, and we no longer make excuses for ourselves, and we stop blaming others and blaming our sin, but just simply recognize to God, God, I am a mess. God, remind me of your presence. And I hope that's what he has done to you today. If you don't know the Lord, can I, probably the biggest understatement I could say, man, you're missing out. You are missing out. Ask the person abroad here, ask myself, ask Shale, ask one of our leaders what it means, what it means to not just get your fire insurance and know who Jesus is, but to simply say, I want to surrender and have the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit move in me. Not just to counsel me, but to guide me, to forgive me in everything I've done. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for today and your message of reconciliation with ourselves and with you. And Lord, I think about our times in our life when, especially in my life, Lord, when I have made excuses, I blamed others, I blamed myself. And Father, there's a gentle voice, what are you doing? Father, thank you that you set everything up not just to end with Bethlehem and not just to end with a cross and not just to end with an empty tomb, but it was for us. It was for us, your children. What you have called your sons and daughters are who are sitting in this room right now who believe in you as Jesus, as as the Lord and Savior. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that you held kings accountable to what they were. You moved nations. You sacrificed your own son just for us. And so, Lord, when you do ask us, what are we doing? You're asking it on the other side of the cross to let us know that you have sent a rescue beyond what we deserve. Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.